As we come to the Word of God this morning, I invite you to stand uh, for the reading of our sermon text this morning, which comes to us from the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, as we read verses 20 through 25. Let us stand as we receive God's Word. Again, beginning at verse uh, 20. Hear the Word of God. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them back to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down to the wall in a large basket. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have granted to us the hearing of these words this morning. We pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you use them to grow us in faith and to grant us your peace. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I realized this morning that uh, uh, the uh, things that have been spoken of are uh, uh, kind of full of illustrations uh, from our General Synod. It, uh, of course, was a a pretty uh, monumental event. Uh, Many have asked why it was uh, that we met uh, with the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. And I've shared with you our, um, uh, the lineage that we share with them. And back in 1782, when the ARP was formed, there was the Associate Presbytery and the Reformed Presbytery. And as any of y'all who have been involved in mergers can testify, that when you take two groups and try to make one, you end up with three groups. And, of course, that's what happened in 1782. Some of the associates stayed out and some of the reforms stayed out. And the reformed who stayed out became the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Now, while we may be divided uh, with history, uh, one of the things that we have in common and one of the things that we were mightily blessed with this week was the preaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We were blessed to hear ministers from our sister denomination proclaim the goodness of the Gospel. We were able to see in in real life the effect of the Gospel in nations around the world. We were able to see how God has richly blessed our brothers. They have uh, grown almost 35% in the last 15 years. And when it was asked, well, how did you do this? What programs did you use? What, 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 what magic did you disperse over the nation? Their answer was simple. Their answer was, we sent men out into the world to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. And the Lord has richly blessed those efforts. It was a keen reminder of something that we see here in Acts chapter 9. That the way that the Lord grows His church 
is through the preaching of His Son. The way that God grows His people is through Jesus Christ. Not only is He the center of our faith, but He is the message that we proclaim to the nations. In a lot of ways, the work of the Gospel is not rocket science. You know, I, I know when I talk to Greer about these things and he tries to explain to me the stuff that he's doing at the University of Tennessee, it's about like trying to explain to me basic math. It just goes right over my head. And sometimes we try to make the gospel work this same way. We try to make it more complicated than it is. But again, what we see here in Acts 9 and what we've seen throughout our time in the, the book of Acts is that the preaching of Christ is not only our primary duty, it is the only duty that we have been given as the church. When Jesus began to go from these men, when He spoke to them as before He rose into heaven, what was the Great Commission? That they go out unto the world. That they go out unto every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And they do what? They teach them the things that I have taught you. That you disciple the nations. That you baptize the nations. And what was to be the content of that preaching? It's worthwhile to remember as we look at the text this morning, what was Paul reading in these synagogues? You know, when he went to the synagogue after his conversion to preach, did he pick up the Gospel of Matthew? And when he is here in uh, Damascus, is he you know, exegeting Romans 15? Well, of course not. He hadn't been to Rome, let alone you know, written the, gospel, or the, the book of Romans. Paul here is proclaiming Christ from the Old Testament. And that was the content of the word that Christ had given to them to go out unto the nations to proclaim the goodness of the Son of God. I mention that because it's worthwhile to remember uh, that what we have in the Holy Bible are 66 books that each one proclaim this same teaching. And we can go especially to Leviticus and we read Leviticus of the Day of the Atonement. We read in Leviticus about the washing of animals and the way that they were made clean. We hear of the way that the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The fullness of God's revelation to testify to us of the work of Christ is, is unending. And it's a beautiful testimony that we see here. Paul, who has been gloriously converted earlier in this chapter, have no other desire in his heart. It's a testimony again to the power of the Holy Spirit. Because again, when we began chapter 9, Saul, as these men in the synagogue say, was engaged in persecuting the church of Christ. He had been given a commission by the governor to go and to round up those who confess Christ and to put them in prison. He had been given the right to give them a, 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 a conviction of execution if necessary. Yet this same Paul, who was an enemy of the faith, had been now made a son of the living God. 
And his desire immediately is to do what? Is to tell others about the glorious word and work of God. And of course it's important to remember how did Paul become so, so moved to do this? Well, Again, what is it about any of us that changes us and makes us have this zeal for the gospel? We see there as he's with Ananias in verse 17, it says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, this is the difference. Again, Paul has been filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things we talked about a couple weeks ago is that it's not as if Paul is unique. Who has received the Holy Spirit? Is that something that only the apostles had? Is it something only the early church had? Is it something that only certain believers who are more gifted than others are given? No, what we see in the Scriptures is that everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and is converted has the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is not some new teaching. What is it that John the Baptist says when people ask if he is the Christ? What does he say? He says, I am not worthy to untie his shoe. Why? Because I merely baptize with water. But what is Jesus going to come baptizing with? He's going to come baptizing with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And again, this is the gift that every true believer in Jesus Christ has received. And again, this gift of the Holy Spirit contains in it that zeal to tell others about Christ. Because again, think about what that means. That we have received Christ Jesus. Again, we're, we, we know the, the, the kind of the schematic there, right? We know the, 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 the kind of the details. We know that we were sinners, that we were lost, that we were dead in our sin, that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through our spiritual union with Christ, we have been made new creatures, that we have been justified, declared holy by the Lord God because of the righteousness of Christ, and that we are being sanctified through the power of God and through our obedience to His Word. But what is it about that truth that excites us? What is it about that truth that should move us and give us comfort and joy? Because one of the great problems we have in the church today is that you know, we know these things. Right? We, we, we confess these things. But the church today is, is weak. The church today is full of those who name the name of Christ but show very little fruit from that faith. And the question has to be asked, why is that the case? Why do we see so little zeal in our day? Is it because the Holy Spirit has been withheld from us? Is there anywhere in the Bible that tells us that Christians will have the Holy Spirit taken away? The Bible doesn't tell us that. What does it tell us about the removing of the Holy Spirit? What it tells us is that when the church, again speaking broadly here, is 
turning away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. When uh, the church is turning away of not only from the standards of the Bible but uh, and the standards of the Ten Commandments, but is turning away uh, from its trust in the supremacy of Christ, well, the warning is made clear in the book of Revelation in chapter 3 that God will remove His lampstand from that church. And while that, that, that vision in Revelation, of course, is symbolic, what does a lampstand do? Well, of course, we don't have lampstands in our sanctuary today, but what do we have? We have these wonderful electrical lights. It's a blessing. Sometimes I think we kind of take for granted how glorious of an era that we live in. Not only do we have the blessing of Duke Power and the blessing of York Electric and these things, but we have the blessing of not sweating to death at the present moment because of these wonderful air conditioners we have outside. And when we think about these things, all these blessings, sometimes we can you know, miss the imagery there in Revelation. Again, what does that lampstand represent? Again, lampstands represent light. And if a lampstand is taken out of a place, what's going to come in? Well, darkness is going to come in. And think of that, again, in this symbolic way of the work of the Gospel. Again, the light, which we're told of in the Scriptures, is Jesus Christ. The light shines in the darkness, right? The light shines on all things. And when that lampstand is removed, it's removed because the church, in this case, the church at Thyatira, has forsaken the Lord God. It's taken away from Ephesus because they have forgotten their first love. And of course, that's what's happened to the Jews of Paul's day. They have forgotten their first love. They have forgotten what the Scriptures they teach every week say. Because again, the Pharisees aren't ignorant of what the Bible says. You know, Paul himself describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And what that means is, is that Paul would have had the entirety of the Old Testament memorized. Now, you know, I know many of us you know, have trouble remembering our own first names at the time. But remember, think about what it must mean to memorize the entirety of the Old Testament. It's an immense thing to think about. But he knew the Old Testament frontwards, backwards, upside down, and backwards. But what use of it was it to Paul? It was of no use because it was darkness to him. He had no light of understanding. It's one of the reasons why the image is used here of what happens to, to Saul here in his conversion. That uh, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once. Now of course Paul literally receives his sight here. But it's saying something much more about the nature of his heart. And he has been given eyes to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Again, that zeal in his heart is welled up. Because when he looks in the Psalms, when he reads Jeremiah, when he reads Joshua, he sees Christ on every page. And every time he picks up his Old Testament and, and, and reads it, he, he, he kind of grows in that fervor. Because the Bible is a constant reminder of the goodness of God to sinners. 
One of the things we saw Paul doing in that previous chapter, of course, is that he was in Ananias' house praying. And again, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but what do you think Paul was doing in his prayers? Do you think Paul had some things to ask the Lord's forgiveness about? You think Paul had some things that he needed to kind of get off his chest before the Lord? Well, I mean, again, Paul was a murderer. Paul had consigned dozens, maybe hundreds of Christians to death. He was responsible for that. Yet what do we see Paul do? Again, he is pouring his heart out in repentance before the Lord. And again, that repentance is that kind of repentance that is filled with tears. You hear David in the Psalms when he speaks of his confession. What does it say? That he he soaked his pillow at night in confessing his sins before the Lord. And again, that's that's the kind of thing that we see from Saul that testifies to the genuineness of his conversion. Again, that's one of the signs of the inward work of the Holy Spirit. Is that recognition that we are sinners. And the recognition that comes that we have been forgiven of our sin. It's one of the great benefits and pleasures of the Christian life. You see, God knows that we fall short. God knows that we are still fighting against the old man within us. That we have sinned against Him. But again, God has not left us in our sin. He's not left us in darkness, in blindness. He has given to us His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish. You see, that's the kind of thing that is allowing Saul to get through this time in his life. This knowledge that he belongs unto God. That he has been forgiven of his sin. That's why he has this zeal again to go to his brothers, the Jews, and proclaim Christ as being the Son of God. Because he knows the forgiveness of sin. He knows what that means in his heart. And he wants his brothers to know what that looks like. Because again, brothers and sisters, as we sit here this morning, the world is soaked in sin. Our churches are soaked in unbelief and in sin. And we see this growing and growing and growing. And what are we going to do about it? Are we going to sit and complain? Are we going to sit and kind of shake our fingers at these things? Well, again, what is the biblical remedy for this unbelief, for this encroaching darkness? And Paul here gives us the answer to that question. It is to go out onto the world and proclaim Christ. Proclaim that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That He is the Anointed One. As Jesus Himself says there to Thomas as, as He asked Jesus, well, how, how am I to know this? And I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Me. Again, Jesus there is not saying those words to Thomas to kind of dampen his spirit. He's speaking those words to Thomas to lift him up. Knowing that Thomas, again, the doubter, as he is unfortunately known to us in history, is one whom the Lord shows compassion. 
Not only at that moment, but of course later on in the Gospel of John when Thomas wants to stick his fingers in the side of Jesus. See, Jesus, as Thomas is asking that, you know, we don't hear Jesus say, Come on, Thomas, do you really need to do that? Do you not see me standing here? You know, we don't hear that kind of thing from our Savior. And our Savior is a man of compassion unto sinners. And so He shows Thomas. He allows Thomas to see these things. And here we see Thomas as he rejoices in the blessings that we have come to know. Again, that's one of the things, of course, we see with Saul. Even when Saul is firm with the Jews, even when he calls the Galatians foolish, even when he's using kind of what we would consider to be harsh language, what is that language always encapsulated in? It always contains the sweet words of Christ. It always contains the promises that are found in our Savior. It's one of the things, of course, that we need to be careful of as we go out into the world and proclaim Christ crucified. First of all, that we're doing it for Christ's sake. That we're not doing it for ourselves. That we're not using the Gospel as a means to enrich ourselves, to show forth our own glory. Because there's lots of people, of course, who do that. The Gospel is a moneymaker if you use it right. We see that, of course, uh, especially in uh, the news. You know, we see, you know, for instance, uh, the gentleman down in Atlanta asking for a $35 million airplane so he can do the work of ministry. And again, we kind of mock that and make fun of it because it is ridiculous and it is absurd. But again, that principle is something that each one of us can take a moment and think about. Again, it's easy for us to mock It's easy for us to kind of cajole those who are kind of caricatures of the worst examples of these things. And it's a much more difficult thing to to, to look at that and apply that to us. And where have we again used the gospel for our own benefit? Again, to make ourselves maybe look better than someone else. Again, these these are difficult questions, but these are the kind of things that Paul is laying forth in his preaching to the Jews. As we see here in verse 22, it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And Paul here again is, is increasing in strength, not because he is, is kind of getting a power boost in the midst of his preaching. He's increasing in strength because God Almighty has enabled him in this work. That's something you see in Paul's writings, the way that he is always careful to make it clear. And what does he say? It is not I, it's not Apollos that has caused the growth. We, we merely watered. But, but who is the one that grew the church? Christ has done that work. Christ has grown His people. And it's something, again, we see about the nature of Paul's ministry throughout his life. Again, he always has Christ at the center of everything that he does. And one of the reasons for that, again, is that he does not fear this world. He's not overly concerned about what this world thinks of him or or what this world will do to him. Much like the Lord Jesus Christ, the time of his death has been foreordained from before the foundation of the world. 
And He knows that when that time comes, that He will go into the presence of His Savior. You know, it's one of the most difficult things, especially in this age, again, as I you know, talk about air conditioning and lights and things like that. We are, we are very comfortable. We are very at peace. We don't have to worry about roving gangs you know, marauding down the roads and burning our houses down. We don't have to worry about the government you know, beating the doors down of this church Again, like many of our brothers and sisters do. And so that, that comfort, much like it did for Israel, you know, allows us and kind of moves us in the devil's ways to become kind of complacent in our faith. And what we see from Paul here, again in this work, is that he is unconcerned with these things. He's, again, he knows that his future is not bound up in the material things of this world. Again, the grass fades, you know, the flower withers, but the Word of God stands forever. Again, we see in this passage, again, this zeal that Paul has, again, because of that reality. And so when it comes time for him uh, to flee because they're trying to kill him, his disciples took him by night and let him down to a wall in a large basket. Now what's interesting, especially about this illustration, is as you remember, this isn't the first time somebody got, got uh, kind of uh, through the wall of Damascus in a basket. Remember in the book of Joshua, as Rahab protected the spies of the Lord, what did she do? She let them down uh, through a basket out of the city because, uh, for good reason, they wanted to kill the people. And we've seen this kind of thing before in that story in Joshua. And what do we understand, again, the point of that story? Again, what was the beginnings? Again, remember, they're, they're, they're trying to destroy Jericho and they're trying to do these things. And it's the beginning of the conquest of Palestine, of the land that God had given here at the beginning of the book of Acts, we have a similar again story where Paul is being led out because the enemies of God want to destroy him. One of the things we are to be reminded of in this illustration is the way in which God has promised from the foundation of the world that He will have victory over His enemies. That He will destroy the works of darkness. That He will bring down the powers of evil. And how do we see that happen? And as we close this morning and as we think upon these, these words that are before us, what is it that we are to be doing? Well, how is it that God is going to work that victory in history? And again, it's through the instrument of the preaching of His Gospel. Of the goodness that we are to show the world around us. And we are to live as those who have that hope, that peace within us, that comfort, that knowledge that we belong not to ourselves. That we belong body and soul to the Lord our God. And what do we have to fear from this world? What's the worst thing that can happen? People might not like you. People might look down at you because you live in a certain way. And think of, uh, of how, 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 how little that is. But how glorious the name of our God is. And how true the message of the Scriptures are. That our peace, our comfort, our hope, our joy, our happiness are not found in those things that are passing away.
But they are found in the glorious name of our God in heaven, who has given to us life eternal, who has given to us the name that is above every name, that we might not perish along with those things that are perishing. But that when we go to our earthly grave, that we will go into the presence of perfect felicity, into the heavens above, where we will rejoice forever with the saints who have gone before. Those fathers and mothers in the faith who have kept the good news and have passed it along unto us. And let us go forth in this place, passing that news on to especially those who are near unto us, who need to know the forgiveness of sins, who need to know the goodness of Christ, and of the beauty of the eternal message of His Word. Let us go forth in this place, being those who rest and trust in Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks again.